Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I'm your host, Ceci Hotonu, Paediatric Surgery Registrar in Scotland. Today, my co-host Greg can unfortunately not join us, but I'm sure you guys will all be missing him. Now, today we've got another fantastic instalment of our Faculty of Surgical Trainers series, again going international, and this time we are in Sydney. I'm very honoured to be joined by Professor Stephen Tobin, a colorectal surgeon in Western Sydney. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm doing fine, Cece, today. Thanks for inviting me to be part of the series. It's our absolute pleasure, and I hope you have a good time. This is one of our favourite series to do. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to find out a little bit more about you, maybe beyond what people would get to know in your day-to-day life. And the whole point of this particular series is to focus on trainers and their outside interests. We'll start with a very nice open question. Who is Stephen Tobin? (laughs) Um, So he's the eldest of five children, um, grew up in Melbourne, um, went to the University of Melbourne, um, Medicine, trained in surgery at St. Vincent's, then worked um, in Britain, accumulated a few fellowships over the way and got very interested in in medical and surgical education, leading to a few significant roles. Um, One of those roles brought me into contact with the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh and there's a lot of connections there now, although I haven't, of course, in the current situation, seen those folks for a couple of years. Um, So that's Stephen Tobin and the career. Um, along the way, got interested in fitness, um, medium distance running, um, collecting wine, having a family, three daughters, living in the country until very recent times. Um, so it's a major academic job, which brought me to Sydney. Fantastic. That sounds like a very full life, um, both professionally and personally. Um, probably don't have that much time on the podcast to discuss it, but I'm intrigued about the wine collecting and about the running. But maybe, oh. maybe. Okay. We- well, very quickly, the wine yeah. collecting came from my father okay. because he and some of his friends were in that what we think of as the vanguard of Australian table wine, 60s and 70s. So I saw that when I was growing up. Um, the running uh, is just long term, so I've never done more than um, half marathons, but um, done something in that range in the last couple of years as well. So that's just general fitness and well-being recommended. Most definitely, and we'll explore a bit later on um, things like work-life balance. And I think it's very important to keep your fitness up. And um, I have a personal love. Um, I've not participated in half marathons before, but I have a historic love for it because. I trained in Newcastle in the UK, which is the home of the Great North Run. And it's such Mm. an amazing atmosphere. It's on my bucket list. Okay, so I swap a note with you there. So I worked in Portsmouth Mm. as a consultant uh, to fill in for a colorectal friend in the 2000s. And I did the Great South Run. Oh, there you go. Well, okay, so let's just get into the so-called meat of the podcast, if you will. Um, Again, it's a focus on training. Who was your best trainer and why? Thank you. So um, first of all, there were two and they overlapped in time. Um, They were both at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Um, One surgeon was um, impressive and 
really taught us to look outside the square and, if necessary, um, take a slightly more complicated way to solving things if that was more likely to work. The other surgeon was um, equally capable but much more around um, faster decisions uh, operating with both hands and um, faster surgery. So the two of those together were profound influences on myself and two or three other contemporaries, um, all of whom have gone on to be successful surgeons. That's fantastic. And it sounds very much to me, um, you do what um, a lot of us do in that you take the best bits of the trainers that you meet through the years, and that's what forms your practice. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, I think so. And I think also after over a residency program, which in those days was, well, four years in the program, but being residents for a couple more years in a reasonably friendly hospital medium size not super big then of course we people all got to know each other as well and so if you were committed they were just great teachers and not just about the the technical about about making decisions about how to behave about accepting in inconvenience at times etc which are all extremely important to the practice of surgery. Mm. It's not just being able to operate. You have to be a whole formed being, so to speak. Mm, definitely. So, so we've talked about your favorite trainers. What do you yourself enjoy about training? Well, um, I think the first thing is that um, if you're interested in training and you're any good as a surgeon, then you should be able to teach or, in a sense, facilitate learning. I think it's all about um, working out where the trainee is up to, um, what their requirements or their goals are when you come in contact with them, and it's about graded responsibility. And some people will need help with technical things. Um, that's always there, I think, for most people along the way, um, but others will need um let's say assistance or guidance with making decisions, being punctual how to behave in the emergency department, et cetera. They're the sort of things that come up. I think from a trainee's point of view, um, they appreciate some sort of um, introduction or welcome. I don't think they always get that in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and I think they also sometimes feel a bit out of depth when things get complicated and a perennial problem, which I personally never saw, but trainees report consistently dealing with intensive care can be a, a difficult um, environment to be a part of the team. I think there's reasons for that, but equally so, um, I think they can be addressed. Yeah. Such an apt and such an accurate, um, I, guess, I guess, summary or, or description of the sort of troubles that trainees can sometimes run into. And I'm so um, grateful that you have identified these and see these as key areas to address. Um, about being a, a bit overshadowed and overlooked as a trainee just reminds me of some of my earlier years. I had a boss that called me Teresa for six months, despite being repeatedly corrected. And that was not a great experience. But um, as you say, having that lovely, friendly environment can really encourage a trainee to learn and to grow. I, I think I think the fact that I practised in a major regional town, of course, um, and we had 
accredited trainees and you know I led the training for a long long time um it um it's a still a, it, it possibly is a slightly easier environment than a 900 bed hospital yeah. um in a big city I think there are some differences on the other hand the work that we were doing was 99% the same um yeah it's it's a certainly an interesting thing to reflect on it is Moving on to a slightly more fun aspect of the podcast, and I'm trying to suss you out. I want to see whether I'm going to be right or not. Do you play music in theatre? And if you do, what would you play? Oh, okay. So I I personally don't actively play it a lot. Um, No, 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 there you go. But I'm tolerant of most. And um, as long as it's... uh, it's not too loud or intrusive. I don't mind. If I had a choice, and, and I've only done this a handful of times over the years, then you um, 2 or even similar time when you 2 started, of course, they're still going, aren't they? But um, Dire Straits from the 80s. Fantastic. I'm so glad. I, I kind of pegged you as a bit of a Bono-esque sort of gentlemen from your look so I'm so pleased that I was right but um, I think music and theatre personally has its place some people really love it some people don't Mm. and it's just whatever is safest for the team I think so it doesn't matter either way I think Mm. and and you too of course also um, I've had the opportunity to see them a couple of times over the years but um, they um, the Joshua Tree of course 1987 so it was in 87 and 88 that most of us were fronting up for our fellowship, which is usually done in the last year of training. And, of course, that was just absolutely huge worldwide at that stage. Well, I mean, it still is. It's absolutely mm. iconic. So um, really great choice. Um, moving on to other interests, books, a personal favourite of mine. What one book, medical or non-medical, have you enjoyed the most? And if you struggle to pick one you can have two one medical and one non-medical if you like okay so we'll start with the medical so mm-hmm. um uh, when we were training in the 80s and you know i did some extra training in the early 90s as well then a book that was i thought just pitched at a really good level was mastery of surgery by neus neus was a um experienced general surgeon professor i think in chicago he wrote a lot um on hernia Mm -hmm. uh and i think one of his books on hernia is still in publication but he was the chief editor of this book um which i think again is still available in in a later edition so that was an extremely useful book professionally Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course we were on books cc then we weren't on computers yes (laughs) Uh, and in terms of non-medical books, um, I, in my early days, had to read um, Lord of the Rings. It was a school final year requirement. I thought this is going to be terrible. I didn't want to read it much as I was a reasonably good reader, and I read it all in about 36 hours. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so that was that, and a bit later on, um, Milan Kundera and the Unbearable Lightness of Being, which was, again, from the mid-'80s, set in Prague. There you go. Wonderful. Um, 
I personally have a humongous library. I absolutely love to read. And I think I must have got that from my grandfather, who was an English professor. And Lord of the Rings, same as you, I just inhaled those books. They're absolutely fantastic. They are. And um, I remember the reflection is twofold because my parents had tried to get me to read The Hobbit beforehand, which, of course, was the the forerunner. And so, of course, I struggled with The Hobbit when I started to read it. But when I went back, it all made a lot of sense. Um, I think in more recent times, because those are both examples from a long time ago, um, a range of books, but, you know, I'm reading about Stalin's wine cellar at the moment, which is about discovering Stalin's wine cellar, which ironically some Australians got onto, and it's not entirely a, a true statement of fact. Um, it's a novel in some ways, but that's, a, that's an amazing book I'm reading at the moment. And, again, that's been published in the last couple of years. Absolutely fascinating. I'll have to look that up. Now, Mm. speaking of of wine, um, you mentioned it as an interest earlier. And um, I know our surgeons were sometimes a little bit bad at maintaining a good work-life balance. Uh, Apart from the other interests that you mentioned, enlighten me, because I'm trying to collect all these bits of advice. How do you keep a good work-life balance? Well, I think that uh, I would say I've only got that now in my major academic role um my wife might disagree with that uh she might say that you still spend too much time on work but but over those many years of being a consultant and then working for medical schools and working for the royal australasian college of surgeons as the dean i certainly don't think i achieved a work-life balance i think it was mostly work and life fitted around it Um, So I don't think I'm a good example. I don't think despite having those couple of interests that I really are a shining example. But at the same time, I think that I'm typical of someone of my age who's been a surgeon now in their early 60s. I think it's pretty typical. I'm not saying it's the right way, but I'm saying I think it's pretty typical. Okay, that's a very fair point. So, um, Professor Tobin, you're stranded on a desert island and you've been told you can only take one surgical tool ever. So what is your favourite tool and why? Okay, so I won't talk about the um, what surgery you might do on a desert island without too many tools, um, but there's, again, I'll just push the model very slightly, but 3O Maxon okay. for anything. 3O Maxon for GI stuff everywhere. Can't live without that. And the other of more later times would be the range of um, Alexis wound retractors and protectors. I thought they were extremely useful, um, either for complicated open stuff or um, for hybrid um, ultra-low resections, etc. So they're two relatively modest tools that I would want to have in my operating theatre on that desert island. Well, in all fairness, I, I love a good Alexa. It, it was a revelation. It, it, we don't use them that often in pediatric surgery because I, I guess our, our babies are so small. But when you need it and you have it, mm. it is an absolute lifesaver. So I get you there. I'm not so sure about the other one, but I get you there. Okay. All right. No problem. And mm. just last but not least, in all your years of practice and experience, can you give us one pearl of wisdom, which is the best bit of advice you've received or you've given in your entire professional life? Can you give 
give us this? Because as I say, I'm collecting good tips so that I can enrich my practice, but also for our listeners as well. Well, I think the first one is a personal one from growing up. And uh, I think when you're the eldest child, it's uh, it's an experience for everybody, isn't it? Because um, there's been nobody before you. My parents were relatively young, but along the way, uh, they did some pretty interesting things. They weren't um, medical, but they did some reasonably interesting things. So one phrase from early days was, no such word as can't. And I think at times that was when we were requested to do chores and we said we couldn't do them, but it also had aspirations of being able to achieve if you put the effort in. Um, so that was from early days. I think from later days, uh, and informed by practice, but also the medical education stuff is about um, making sure you listen. So if you are delivering a lecture or you're running a workshop, and I did a lot of those things over the years, or chairing something, whatever it might be, um, much as I'm talking quite a bit at the moment, it's actually about the listening. It's about looking at your audience. It's about making sure that your message is clear and well considered, being able to um, defend the proposition, but at the same time, accept other people's points of view. Um, I think that that's not so much a, a, a pearl of wisdom, but it is something I try and hold myself to. I admit that that nobody can do that all of the time. And, you know, one of our, you know, health ministers has just had to, you know, apologise in Parliament because he got some numbers wrong and about the pandemic. And, you know, we're not doing too badly in Australia. So nobody's perfect. But but trying to stay on message and, and, and have that discussion with the room um, I think it's very important. Mm. I think those are great little bits of advice. And I think also your parents must have gone to the same school that my mother went to because she says um, you can't or you won't. That's that's the decision. You know, that's that's the argument. Okay. It's yeah, not yeah. like mm. it's not you can't, it's you won't. So I think it's I think it's growing up and and I think um you, you don't notice it. I think it's a it's a phrase that came back to me when I was a, a young adult and I started to think a little more about that. Yeah. But um, you know, uh it does sound like it was a similar school of um development, um CCL. I, I think so. Um, I mean, those of our listeners may recall that um, Greg and I are actually Nigerian origin and um, Nigerian mothers are a specific breed. They are very determined and very, very strong. Um, and it sounds like you also have that similar sort of background and testament to your success as a surgeon and all the things you've done for education. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, Professor Tobin, for giving up your time to talk to us. Your life sounds fascinating and it would be great to have you on a full length podcast episode sometime in the future if your busy schedule allows. Thank you, Cece. I was just going to say I certainly like to acknowledge um, the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh. Um, uh, when I received the Ad Hom Fellowship in 2018, that was um, uh, very um, gratefully received. I had a fair bit to do with the college. It was not um, expected and um, I look forward in more normal times to resuming my connections in Edinburgh so thank you. Of course and if you're ever over this way it'd be so great to meet you and have more of a chat about your interests and your professional yeah. life. 
Now, guys, that's the end of this podcast. Once more, a big thank you to Professor Tobin. And until next time, do stay safe and be kind to each other. Bye, everybody.